Well, thank you. And <laughs> thanks, Ashley. Thanks again to Spy Valley for hosting us. It's such an awesome spot to be, especially on a day like today. Um, thanks again to the Bookfest uh, people for organising this amazing event. But most of all, thanks to everyone for coming along to this session with Brian. It was sold out really quickly. You're really lucky um, to be here and, and to hear Brian. I first met or had contact with Brian about 10 years ago when I wrote something. Sorry, my name's Mike White. I'm from North and South magazine. I wrote something in North and South magazine which didn't impress Brian. And it was... <coughs> and I got an email from Brian telling me this. Uh, I responded and tried to justify my position uh, rather lamely. But Brian, with much more grace than I deserved... Um, accepted uh, my viewpoint um, and said, look, next time you're down in the South Island in central Otago, feel free to call by, have a cup of tea. And over the last 10 years, I've done that a few times, um, driving those long straights through the Maniatoto to Aturahua where Brian lives. And uh, it's been one of the best parts of my job, I have to say, is to... Have, have met Brian and spent some time with him. One of those trips was um, to do a story about Brian using the shed out the back of his house as a way of talking about his life, tracing his life through the shelves and all the different things that he's accumulated. And, uh, you know, everything from books, his sporting triumphs, uh, his fishing adventures, his close shaves uh, during his adventures in life. And, and I just hope that today we can give you a little sense of that and of Brian's life, which has been rich and full of adventure. Um, Brian's just come back from overseas recently from a wedding of one of Marlborough's favourite sons, Anton Oliver, uh, who he has had a long association and friendship with. We had a bit of trouble getting, getting him here. He was meant to come in on Thursday. It took him a, a, an extra day to get here. But it's fabulous to have you here, Brian, and can you please just welcome uh, Brian to Marlborough. <laughs> Brian, you grew up in Dunedin, but when you were born, your father was off in Italy fighting across uh, the continent and you didn't see him till, or he didn't see you till you were about nearly two years old. That's right, isn't it? I can't remember now. I was very <laughs> small. <laughs> my first memory of my father was we were living in um, my mother's parents' house in South Dunedin and one day the door opened and a man walked in with in an army uniform and my mother picked me up and handed me to him. And I was you know, bewildered, I guess. That was the first, to first time I'd seen Elf. And um, he had a huge influence on my life, as my mother did in relations and so on. And um, before many years had gone by, I started to feel extremely lucky with the parents that I had and and the upbringing that um, I had was beginning to have and um, have had. You, your upbringing was very humble, as they, as they say. Um, you wrote that we were working class, but that didn't mean we were nobodies. Yes. Well, 
it's a bit of a menagerie, really. We moved from one grandparent's lot to the other grandparent's house and so on. So, And then we moved, I think, and into a state house in Christophen, which in those days, I suppose, was regarded as pretty bleak because everything was bulldozed off. But away in the west, you could see the Mungatua ranges snow-girt for a lot of the winter. And that was, you know, my father called the far blue yonder and so on. And um, even back in those days, I thought, hmm, I live in a special place. Mm. And your parents, Alf and Audrey, um, I think your father said to you that apart from time, they felt they had little else to give you. Yes, well, I suppose one of the cliches that was a bit hand-to-mouth. Um, we never wanted for anything you needed. Um, home cooking. Um, we went to sport most Saturdays. My father was very keen on sport. He was a good cyclist. He trained cyclists. My cousin, Alan Larkins, was picked to go to the 56 Melbourne Olympic Games. Uh, my, my father was keen on cricket and so on and so on. We played cricket in the backyard. Um, it just went on and on. We had running races around the block. We walked to school in our shorts and it was bloody cold up there <laughs> in Christophen. Um, you know, grandparents cooked scones and pikelets and and made knitted jerseys for us, and balaclavas. The and <laughs> the kind of lifestyle and the kind of environment and community that you're <laughs> growing up in, you said that um, every that your family was appalled by any signs of pretentiousness or snootiness. Yes. And that was kind of how Dunedin was in those days, or just the area that you were growing up in? Uh, yes, I think that would be a reasonably true statement to make about the nature of Dunedin. In those days there were, wasn't much ostentation. By and large there weren't the same number of big houses. Um, everyone had experienced two world wars and the Great Depression so there was a sense of gratitude for what we had and the feeling that it could have been a lot worse. Um, I suppose you could say that people who had a bit of money and Professionals lived in Maori Hill and one or two of the other hill suburbs, but nobody flaunted anything in those mm. days mm. Um, at all. And um, as long as you had enough to get by on, um, people were reasonably satisfied, I think, as far as I could see. Mm. I mean, at one point when we lived in North Dunedin in a big house, there was my father's parents in the house, there was my auntie, there were two boarders, Alan Larkins and Jimmy Larkins. Glenn and I, mum and dad. <coughs> mum hated it, really, but I loved it because we had this great mixture of adults and um, all sorts of things went on. Well, you said that Alfie's dad said that your household was a den of eccentricity. I found it a marvellous mix of vitality, vitality, bigotry, experience, kindness, warmth, bile, humour and determination. It may not al always have been couth or cultured, <laughs> but nor was it entirely uncouth. Yeah, well that would be right. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. your father had been forced to leave school 
when he was about 12 mm. and your mum was only at school till she was about 14. Mm. Um, but would it be entirely wrong to characterise it as an uneducated household? No, I wouldn't have said that. Um, my cousin Alan Larkins, the cyclist, he, he eventually got a qualification in structural engineer. Jimmy was an um, electrician's brother. Um, Lou, <laughs> grandfather, well, he just grew vegetables, basically, and he, he had been a motor mechanic. Um, Albie Collins, who was a boarder of ours, was a bacteriologist at the dental school, as I recall, and he played senior tennis, and we all played backyard cricket in the little yard backyard, and we played on the footpath outside, mm. um, and the adults got involved as well. And we lived by the lease, which was stuffed full of trout. And I, I got, and you, there's no fish in it now, actually, but that's part of the environmental and degradation and so on that's taken place all over New Zealand. Were there books in the house, Brian? Uh, yeah, well, <coughs> Lou got Parade magazine and Wide World magazine, and there were library books. Some of them read more than others. Um, I started to read at quite an early age. Um, so I read quite a lot. Um, my father, not much. Mum did. Um, but there was nothing literary in the place. Um, but, um, yeah, I became known as a bookworm, I suppose. You did, as a kid. You yeah. know, from famous five days yeah. in the and through to things that... Mm. Uh, yeah, and it was deemed unusual, I suppose, because uh, we were all mad keen on sport. Yeah. You know, and cricket, hockey, cycling, and so on and so on. I started playing rugby, but father said, "Well, you're not big enough, and it's not a game which requires sufficient skill." You know. <laughs> <coughs> <coughs> um, yeah. <laughs> and the cycling, and I got involved in cycling. With it. But when I went to boys' high school, that was, they said, "You're too good at cricket and hockey to." be involved in that and the headmaster Ted Ames said it's not a team sport and I was in the first 11 from the fourth form on and, and, and from the third form in hockey and my father said you might have a future in that there's probably no future in, future in cycling so mm. I did that for many years mm. and, and look yeah. a few of you may not know the Turner family's uh, extensive you know, ha how famous they are in sport. Brian, do you just want to tell us um, uh, about your, your two brothers mm. and uh, mm. their sporting areas and how you sort of, as a family, divided up who played what sport? Oh, yeah. Um, well, <coughs> yeah, how do we get around to that now? We, um, when I got through my teens, I, I was playing cricket in the uh, under-age team, Brabant Shield, and I played under 23, and um, Glenn and I, yeah, I actually opened the batting, he came in, I think he was a fourth form, was he? Third form, he, we were playing Kings High School, and he came to the wicket, and I looked at them, and thought, what have we got here? And so on, and so on, and it became evident quite early that Glenn was keener on cricket than this I was. This is your next brother down. Yeah, yep. next brother down. And so, at one point in my early 20s, I said, I'm going to give cricket away. Um, I'm going to focus on other things. Um, I haven't got time to play two sports seriously in a year. Mm. And Glenn said, well, I'll 
But Glenn was an extremely fine hockey player. He played for Otago when he was 16, 17. Very good indeed. Um, but he, he had the temerity to go off to England, as it were, when he was a 19-year-old, I think it was, and they all said, who do you think you are? <laughs> and he got a contract with Worcester, and that's, right. that's how he became there. Um, and, um, well, Greg, the younger one, I think I was about 19 when he was born. Mm. He, he's always said he felt as if he had three fathers, not two brothers. And we told him that he needed to harden up and grow up <laughs> <laughs> and um, not be silly, that we didn't see him in that regard. But he was exceptionally good at cricket and hockey as well, but he decided he wanted to um, see if he could make a name for himself and not just be seen as the brother of. And he took up golf and he got very good at that very quickly. Mm. He turned professional when he was quite young. Again, he was told, who do you think you are? And in those days, of course, and Glenn found this in particular, it was regarded as um, a sin. I mean, Walter Hadley told Glenn that he was a blight on the game and that when the day that New Zealand cricket went professional would be the death knell of the great game in New Zealand. Glenn was a bit pissed off about that, frankly. <coughs> but I think Walter changed his mind not all that many years after that when... All three yeah. of you mm. in your sporting <coughs> careers, I mean, because you represented mm. New Zealand uh, in mm. hockey. Yeah. Glenn, one of our greatest ever, you know, mm. cricketers, um, and Greg, uh, a fantastic professional golfer. All three of you managed to piss off the authorities in your individual <laughs> sports, though, didn't you? So where does that come from? Does it come from just, you know, the the some Turner streak of, of never backing down, or was it just a fact that you weren't going to submit to the authorities where others were, were keen to or happy well, to? Yeah. Um, well, I don't, I'm not quite sure. Well, I, I, I said something out of order at one point after I came back from um, playing hockey for New Zealand and Australia and touring Australia, and I played every game but one, uh, one in the space of a month, you know. And uh, when I got back... And then I, uh, I'd been working in the customs department, I think, in Christchurch, in Plank, Canterbury. I decided I wanted to go back south. And I moved, and I went into central Otago and um, got a job on the rabbit board with my uncle. And then I got a message to say that I was required to turn up for a coaching school of a few days in Masterton in a couple of weeks' time. And I said, oh, you can go and get stuffed. I said, I've just played all these games in Australia and the rest of it. I don't need a coaching school at this time. It's going to cost me. I'm not going to be paid. You're not going to pay my fares up and back. So forget it. I never once after that was invited to even a um, trial, hockey trial for New the Zealand. New Zealand team and so on. And I played... Um, Played for Otago and Wellington and Canterbury and the North Island and the South Island during that period of time. And um, along with guys who actually won a gold medal at that year. And so I, I had to say to myself, should I get really annoyed about all of this and indignant and make a song and dance? I didn't because there were so many other things that interested me. Mm. 
and I just got on with it, and I climbed more mountains as a result. Yeah, indeed. Mm. But 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 it's kind of interesting because you did stand up to the authorities, as did your brothers. Mm. But I mean, you've often described yourself as as an insecure person, a nervy kid yeah. um, that was able to mask it. And and in one of your books, in Boundaries, you say. Most days I rummage around in the drawer looking for self-confidence and a mask of assurance. I mean, is that still true? Or eventually did you find your self-confidence? No, I never have done. Um, I'm amazed now that I did as much and have done as much as I have. I couldn't have imagined, really, that I've gone down so many pathways, as it were, over time. But no, I was a jumpy, nervy kid time even had treatment for that one point when I was young um, and I still am and you find it my age quite jumpy you know I can come across as other than that you know William was a bit the same um, yeah I don't, I don't know what happened with Glenn really I, it was to do with the fact that he was a professional in mm. part <coughs> um. there were other things other sports Brian perhaps uh in your life, the one that's uh, you've been as well most passionate about is cycling. Mm. As I say, your dad was a good sprinter, good cyclist, mm. and you became a cyclist as a, as a young lad. Mm. And you're still, as I understand, the oldest member of the Wakatapu Central Otago Cycling Club. Is yeah, I am. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Who was it? Uh, did I say this to you before? One guy said to me in cycling once, I don't understand you. He said, you've got a body like a clapped-out Cortina and you drive it as if it's a so-and-so Ferrari. <laughs> and how is it that, you know, most of us at your age group can't beat you? <laughs> and I said, well, you know, when you feel buggered and that sort of thing, I always say to myself, no, no, one more time, one more time. And, you know... And my father and the others and say the thing about cyclists is that they know how to suffer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I found it exhilarating. It's like, you know, there's nothing like riding fast downhill and sweeping through the bends and ripping along with a big tailwind up your acre on the flat and a big bunch and there's the whir and the sound and the change going round and so on and you're changing and there's a hill coming up and I'm looking at the guys with me and I'm thinking... I'm going to hurt you on the way up, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so on and so on. And <coughs> I found the bike riders. My Alan Larkins, he would go away on Sunday morning with a group of them, and they'd ride to Waitahuna and back. And then sometimes Alan and would go down the bay of the harbour, down to Portobello and back, just to finish off. So he'd be away for six, seven hours sometimes. And he trained at night after work in the winter and other days and dad would take Alan out behind um, the old Chrysler we had with a bit of a flat back down the Bay Road motor pacing in those days there was hardly any traffic you know and we'd rip around the corners and the tyres would be squealing and I'd be in the back window saying to dad he's still there he's still there he's still there <laughs> you know <coughs> and then when we came back into town just before we got to Anderson's Bay on the um, cross the inlet there, <coughs> Dad would say we'd speed up a bit, and you know, and then Alan would try and out sprint us at the finish, you know. Mm. <laughs> so you'd have Alan out here and me in the car looking out the window. And yeah, I just I just found it 
amazingly appealing in all sorts of ways, partly because it hurt, but partly because you saw country on Sundays that you wouldn't normally see. And, and, <coughs> and the bike riders that I've known, they train harder than almost anyone else, and I can't imagine... Um, you know, when, when I, was, I, I, when I went down to see a friend of mine, Julian Dean, who's you know, as good a road rider as we've ever had in the south of France there two or three years ago. And stayed with them down there for about ten days. And I had the pleasure, I went out riding with a really top pro. I mean, he, he would do his intervals up the hill and I'd do mine. But we would, we would ride out to the hill, the Wiggly Hills, and we would ride back together. And I've got all the gear. I've got all the hand-me-down gear from the professionals. Jarman and the, you know. Well, I, you know, it's, you know it's, 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 it's kinky, quirky and great fun wearing it. Yeah. <laughs> 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 and I, look, I'm not going to give away your age, but as a 73-year-old, <laughs> I understand <laughs> that you're still uh, in training for the next season. Look, I just wonder if you could read to us a little bit. This is from Brian's book, Boundaries. Um, this is a, a, a passage about cycling and why you love it perhaps um, when I go for a ride as I still do now and then I see myself as setting out on yet another adventure the rolling, twisting, turning road before me there's time to reflect and amuse to enjoy the sights and smells the wild thyme and the new mown hay for instance and sounds like the hooing and hawing of the wind in the trees and the swishing of trussic grass in the nor'westerly gusts. Nature's music. I take my troubles and harassments with me and look to leave some of them behind. The skyscapes entrance, the landscapes astound and move me, and feelings for those I know and love flow through me. Going for a ride is like setting out on a walk a means of sidelining issues that perturb and confound me. In all sorts of ways, I'm reminded that if, if it were not for the skills and kindness of others, I wouldn't still be here. On a bike, one's reading the wind, is aware of the points of the and our compass in several senses of the word, is mindful of the ups and downs ahead of which gears you'll select to get up every hill is apt to recall having come this way before while being careful to watch for the unexpected. New potholes, angry magpies in spring, approaching vehicles, articulated vehicles especially, wandering stock. <coughs> and there's always the flashing and whirring of spokes and wheels, a muted humming and drumming on the seal. There's the click when you change gear in the even and the even noise of the chain running over sprockets begins to grow louder, especially when you turn around and head for home and the tailwind strengthens. Then that's when you put a bit more effort in. And then when you feel some part of you is flying, you know you're one with the best you'll be. Everywhere I've lived and ridden, I've found that next to walking, biking is the best way of exploring what the world around me is like and willing to disclose. I've ridden alongside the Clusa River from Alexandra to Clyde, through bits of the Naseby Forest, over parts of the old Dunstan Road, over most parts of the Otago Central Rail Trail, 
ridden into the wall in one of the tunnels in the Pulburn Gorge, <laughs> picked apples from wild trees in the Ida Valley, whizzed down the hill into Wedderburn, and so on. I've raced the gut buster, the race from Garston to Bannockburn too. Everyone, even the guns, says it's hard ass. I've ridden and pushed a bike to the top of the Hawkton Range and up and down Danzy's Pass. I've raced in scores of events run by the Central Otago Rocktip Cycling Club to Glenorchy, Kingston, Wanaka, Roxburgh, Terrace, Makarora, Alexandra, Chatter Creek, Omakau and St Baffins and more. I've ridden all round the Maniatoto, even up to Hamilton's diggings. Ridden with many others, men and women with bits of daring do and love and good humour in their makeup, their hearts. It's not sentimental, it's elemental. And sometimes you discover things that illuminate and resonate. After all, it's an emotional journey we're on as well as an intellectual adventure. Two wheels good, more often than not, make me face the ups and downs, put me in touch with the really real world out there. I keep saying to myself, ride it out, just ride. <laughs> A lot of your, um, your life has been spent in the, in the, the wider world. Uh, you know, uh, you're, you're out there cycling. You're also out there fishing a lot, Brian. Brian, uh, you, you, you've, you've fishing has been a passion, as you say, from a ten-year-old in the Lee, mm. in Dunedin. Yeah, and you've seen some of the most glorious bits of New Zealand through fishing. Would that be right? Oh, true. Yeah. Uh, special places for you? Oh, the Upper Clinton, Glazenock, um, Upper Matara. Um, the gorge of the Marafenua River over the back of Danzig. You need to be a mountain goat to get in there. My father often called me a mountain goat, and I took that as a, as a high commendation. Mm. Um, and <coughs> oh, parts of Fiordland, um, Glasnock. Uh, I mean, it's just goes on and on. Is yeah. fishing what a search for peace? Is it part? Pitting your skills, part escapism, part just surrounding yourself in sort of untouched New Zealand? All of those things. <coughs> um, you know, into the wider world, as it were. I like to try to get into places, myself and friends, that few others had ever been. Um, I wanted to see what was there before we were, as it were. It's the same with climbing mountains, you know. You I wonder if I could get up there. Right? Do I have it in me? Am I foolish enough or good enough and so on? And you get up on high. I mean, one of the things we would do in the Darren sometimes is we'd climb up above the Homer Tunnel and look down or across um, um, on the slopes of Christina or whatever. But anyway, close you could see. The buses would stop at the portal and one of the guys would say, um, how many people do you think will get out of the bus? And how far do you think they'll walk from <laughs> the bus before they stop and run back to the bus? <laughs> so we'd have a little wager there. Some guy would say, oh, 15. Some would say 20. Never. You seldom got more than 20 going to get out of the bus. 
and they didn't go far, a few, few steps. Get back in the box. Yeah. And that's, a, you know, that's something that is, has changed in all the years that you've been out in, the, in New Zealand's back country. Um, the number of people coming here and the change to the environment. And it's something that's played a large part in your life and in your writing and, in, and you know, what some might call your activism. Um, but even at an early age, you wrote that you were ashamed and angry at being part of society, guilting a, guilty of such unthinking desecration. So has that process really gone on right throughout your life? the despoilation of the, of the environment. Yeah, well, I don't see, I've never seen all change as progress. Um, if people say something is progress and development, I ask them, what do you mean by progress in this context? Um, when you mean development, uh, you're not often saying that what occurs is um, alteration, transformation, sometimes destructive or degradation of natural values and things. I'll say, um, um, you know, maybe I'll quote Aldo Leopold to them. He said that until human beings see the world around us as a community to which we belong and are an integral part, rather than, you know, a suite of commodities, we won't behave in the way in which we ought to the world around us. <coughs> um, you know, and who was it who said, we're using up nature's capital too fast, to use the language of the, you know, in economic terms, I suppose, in part, and so on and so on. And um, and I've always seen this as just, you know, we're continuing down that trail, as I see it, and uh, <coughs> as we increase in our numbers, uh, you can't, no system, I mean the physicists and others will tell us, will they not, that can continue to expand without um, what imploding, I suppose. <coughs> um, so, <coughs> so I'm not against human beings at all. I mean, I, I'm one of them and, and I've, I've got a bigger circle of friends that I truly like and in some cases love than most people I know. But as a collective, if so, so. We're not behaving ourselves. So yeah. where are you left? Are you left angry? Are you left dispirited? Um, oh, irritated, sometimes angry. Um, yes, sometimes dispirited. Um, it's hard because I suppose my interest in, 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 you know, one guy said to me once, he came up and whispered to me, I forget who it was now, he said, oh, I've always wanted to ask you this, Brian. He said, are you an activist? <laughs> and I said, I'm, I hope so. I'm not an, I'd hate to be an inactivist. <laughs> so, but I, I, the, the interest in environmental stuff went, goes back to, I suppose, in particular, the Manafori campaign. Mm -hmm. And then I was part of a, was a big group of us in Dunedin who fought to prevent a um, aluminium smelter being built at the, Aramoana and so on and so on and I've been part of most of those ever since those things those sorts of environmental campaigns and I've sometimes thought that it's cost me a lot in terms of time and energy and so on and but I've got to the point where I'm saying it's 
too late to give it away now and I'm the chairman of the Central Otago Environmental Society and a small group of us and we do what we can to prevent um, undesirable things occurring up there as it were. Mm. Yeah. You talk about someone asking about being an activist, you, you wrote that I get accused of being an extremist but nothing can be more extreme than what we as human beings have done to New Zealand since we've been here and one of those um, campaigns that you're involved in uh, more recently was a wind farm in central Otago where you near where you live um, up in the Maniatoto uh, and you and Graham Sidney uh, the the artist and Anton Oliver um, and Grace Shatke yeah were all <laughs> involved in that very involved in that campaign to stop yeah. uh, Meridian putting a wind farm up there yeah. did it strike you as rather I and you copped as you say an awful lot of flack for your position on that did it strike you as rather ironic that you and Graham Sidney particular particularly are seen as icons of Central Otago and have brought Central Otago and all its glories to the world, yet you were somehow seen as heretics for wanting to stop development of that Central Otago landscape. Oh, yeah. We got fired at from all sorts of angles. I mean, that was, I think it would have been the biggest wind farm in New Zealand, mm. as it were, um, adjacent to the old Dunstan Road, one of the, the, the earliest of the trails into central Otago. There are other ways of providing for our needs and limiting our numbers and so on and so on without something of that magnitude and size. Mm. It took about four years, that fight, and I think twice to the Environment Court. Mm. The court turned it down. It wasn't us. <laughs> you yeah. know, within the well, same with... But you were blamed for it. Oh, yeah, well, but, you know, that just goes with the territory. Um, you know, you've got to have a face the part of the Trinity, you've got to have some gonads to keep going with this sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we, we got a bit of chop for the, um, you know, they wanted to put a dam on the Nevis. It's about the, the last decent river in central Otago that doesn't have a dam on it. Mm -hmm. Can you not leave the land Nevis alone, we said? So it's fought against that and the court found, turned that down as well. So good. There are other ways of if we're as resourceful, I don't like the word resource because it, I say to people there are usually proper nouns for what you're describing as resources, fish, birds and trees, for instance. Why not just call them that? Mm. <coughs> so, you know, so, you know, we have other means of going about things the way we've been doing. And in my lifetime, I've seen massive transformation of the landscapes. The tussock grasslands have taken a hammering and they're still getting it, what's mm. left of them. Mm. And then we've got the wilding pines, which mm. you know many of you here might know all about. And unless we can stop their spread in the next two or three years at the most, then the botanists and the rest of them think it's probably all over for what's left of the classic grasslands. <coughs> you were introduced, or part of your introduction to this, you know, to the glories of Central Otago was uh, a, a patch when you were rabbiting up there, I think, as a young man, weren't you? Yeah. Was that with your Uncle Jack? Uncle Jack, yeah. And, and look, mm. Uncle Jack was quite instrumental in introducing you to um, 
to the outdoors. And can I just get you to read a, a brief passage <laughs> about one of those early uh, outings with Uncle Jack? Uh, yes, okay. My father called Uncle uh, Jack Lindsay, my, one of my mother's brothers, he called him the bull roarer. He used to shout and roar a lot. And my father, you know, he, he didn't dress as well as my father did. My father was a good dresser. He was always very disappointed with me. He, <laughs> thought, I, he thought I was very scruffy, scruffy you know. And uh, the wild man of Borneo, he called me. Um, anyway, look, Jack, Jack Lindsay on the rabbit board and Bex. When I got left my job in Wellington working for AUP, I went back to South South and got a job on the rabbit board for a while while I worked out what next I would do. Anyway, essentials for Jack and me were warm, hard-wearing clothes and socks and plenty of underwear. He bought socks and underpants, jockeys of course, a dozen pair at a time. He introduced me to corned beef sandwiches and fruitcake five days in a row, to saveloys and eggs for breakfast, to thick slices of melted cheese twirled on a fork and scoffed. Jack shot just about everything, stationary or moving, at one time or another. Mallards, greys, swans, pukeko, parries, mice, rats, magpies, fish, cans, bottles, pigs, sheep, dogs, cats, possums, goats, cheese, chickens, roosters, quail, chooker. Mainly to eat, but not always. The cans and bottles are target practice. Roosters, when they'd outlived their usefulness, magpies that attacked him. He even shot me once. <laughs> <coughs> I was standing off to one side of a clump of gorse. The dogs were scratching around and yelping in the middle of it. There was a whoop and barking started. A rabbit tore out, a spaniel, a foxy and a beagle close behind. I loosed off one barrel, then the other. The yips told me I'd ping the dog. Jack fired two and a few pellets flitted against my parker. They must have glanced off stones. The rabbit escaped. Bastard, <laughs> said Jack. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So yeah. Central Otago, Brian, you <laughs> are, you know, uh, connected with Central. Um, you've lived there for how long? About 20 years or so? Well, I went up there in 1999. Yeah. Mm. Uh, but you obviously it was Otago and Central were an area that you knew well. Mm. Were you attracted to Central because of who you were, the type of person you were, or has Central shaped and chiselled and changed who you are? Um. Who was it that wrote the mountain? It was. He felt as if the mountains were saying, "We are watching you. Are you watching yourselves in us? Um, um, you yourselves in us." And um, I've been shaped by the South. I was no doubt. I kept. I went back south when I was about thirty. Did I not? Can't remember. I, was, I said to my wife at the time. I said. We kept going down to Island Bay and looking across the strait at the Kaikouras and the <laughs> snow. One day I said to her, we're going home. And she said, I'm not. So I went, taking our small son, back down to Dunedin. And so, so I always regarded myself as a southerner, I guess. Do you still see the North Island as a bit of a foreign country? Yes. Okay. Mm. The parts of foreign country, they do think differently there. Who said that now? 
that writer, an American writer, I think, in English. So 20 years in, uh, yeah. or so in Aturahua, um, people might know where Aturahua is. It's heartland, central Otago, by Hell of Frost, a, a fierce down there. Um, have you become a local yet? Mm. Um, yeah. Yes and no. Because I'm an Otago boy and played sport a lot. Um, yeah, I suppose I'm on the... I haven't reached the top of the rung of the ladder there, though. Um, but I think I, I think most of them would say that hmm, looks like you're going to stay. <laughs> <laughs> when people say to you though that you're synonymous with Central Otago, how does that make you feel? Um, yeah, I'm more than okay with that. Yeah, when you think of the skyscapes and the landscapes and um, the sounds of the Norwester and the big bunchy snow tussocks and the way they flog and the colour of them and I like the sounds of running water and I like watching hawks, you know, moving around and swaying and correcting things in the gusts. Yeah, I'm, I'm more at home in the outdoors than I am in heavily populated urban areas. I mean, this last time... The second to last time I went to London, I vowed that I'd never go back. And so <laughs> not long back from visiting a son of mine over there, and I'm thinking, and I said to him, you're going to have to come back to see me, I think. Mm. <coughs> the, the incredible life that you've had, Brian, so rich and, and full, um, you've managed to mix all those adventures and the sporting aspect of your life with writing, has there often or it ever been uh, comments that maybe you should just stick to one thing or another that you, you know, w it was a was it an uneasy mix for some people to accept a sportsman yeah. with a writer? Yeah, it was. Yeah, that was a puzzle bewildered some. But <coughs> I started scribbling things in a notebook when I was about, I don't know, 16, 17 in the backyard of the house we lived in out near the Bayfield High School at the time. Um, so I was writing about see the slow motion disintegration of white clouds in the blue and all this sort of <laughs> thing. Yeah, and I, I never stopped writing things down from that point on. It, it was seen as reasonably unusual, I think. Mm. Um, and I regarded writing as a condition that's something that I, um, you know, I just can't help it. I want to. I've, uh, you know, you never know what you think until you see what you've said. And I've got scores of notebooks, you know, some of those, um, what I put in there in the last day I've been here. I regard these, I write in here, I call them my commonplace books, in that if I read or hear, read, someone that they've written something that appeals to me or strikes me in one way or another, I'll write it in my notebook. And sometimes poems and essays grow out of that. <coughs> um, <coughs> yeah, and... Um, yeah, these, these are uh, you know, uh, among the most precious things I actually own.
This book, Somebody's Nobodies, <coughs> is um, a story of part of your life. Yeah. And it's one of the most incredible books that I've uh, been lucky enough to read. Um, and it's it only goes so far, though, Brian. It only goes up to a young Brian Turner. Um, what chance that we're going to see more addition uh, mm. or uh, other volumes kind of of, of Brian Turner's life? I'm going to have to hurry up, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> I started that out and it got to that length and I, was I stopped it at the age of 25. I had no idea that I would have as much to say <laughs> when I started writing that as, as I found out that I had. And I've always wanted to add to it but I never got round to it because I've been writing so many other things and other books. Um, poems and prose, non-fiction mostly. And I wrote some plays at one point but that's another story. Uh, I'd like to finish that, but I'm not sure I could remember of much now. But well, you better get on to it. <laughs> yeah, I've been told that again and again, Mike, recently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I'm, yeah, I'm teetering at the moment. Yeah. yeah. Look, we've got a few moments for, for questions, ladies and gentlemen. Um, uh, we're so lucky to have Brian here. We've limited this discussion to kind of Brian's life and some of his non-fiction work. There's another session tomorrow about poetry um, at Hunter's Wines tomorrow morning. I think there might be a few tickets left if, you, if you're lucky to, to get those. Um, but feel free to ask questions about anything, poetry or any of Brian's writing or other uh, things that have gone on in his life. Pete Jerram, I'm going to put you on the spot. I know you want to ask a question because you say that when you were at Otago Boys High School, uh, you were bowling to Glenn Turner, Brian's brother. He got a very thick edge through to the keeper and was given not out by Brian Turner. And you want to <laughs> pick him up on that? Really? 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 I must tell Glenn about that. He did think that was very funny. <coughs> Glenn used to walk mostly. Yeah, I think Glenn was one of the few pros that actually, well, no, some would have, I suppose, but by and large he went. Mm. All right. Yeah, well, Ted um, wasn't very pleased with me because in my fourth year at school, so it was a UE year, um, University interest examinations coincided with our annual match against Christ College and Ted really wanted us to beat, not just beat, stuff Christ College, frankly. And I was captain and opening batsman and they didn't give a credit me university entrance. And he brought, called me into his office and ticked me off and I said, well, Mr. Aim, I said, you know, you, you guys could have done something about that. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, your marks weren't good enough, he said. Well, I said, well, just change the date of the game. <laughs> didn't happen that way. But next year they did accredit me university entrance and I only ever spent one term at university before I gave that away. But I had been writer-in-residence at a couple of universities, which 
is and other it, strains. Is it true that <coughs> in that one term at, at Otago at Varsity, that your first English essay you got a D for? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I never felt that I would was an academic, and I never felt at that time that I would produce anything of any consequence as a writer. But I kept at it. Yeah, mm. I, I mean, I've lots of things that happened to you are just accidents. Uh, I got a job with Oxford University Press. I'd only ever spent one term at university before I left it, and I got it because John Griffin, who was the who started and ran the un marvellous bookshop, University Bookshop in Dunedin, and got, got a call phone call from Ralph Goodridge at AUP in Wellington saying he'd got a letter of application for this job, which I only applied for because John Dixon and I were working in the bakehouse at Lawrence and the <laughs> night shift, and he looked at the listener and he said, here's a job that might suit you, and they AUP were advertising for someone. So anyway... And and Ralph Goodridge said to um, John Griffin, he said, well, look, you have a talk to him, he said, and if you think it's worth my while coming to see him, I will. So I went in and saw John, and he spoke to me for a quarter of an hour, and he said, hang on a minute. And he rang up Goodridge on the phone, and he said, I've been, talk been talking to Brian Turner, and he said, if you won't give him the job, Ralph, I will. So Ralph came down, and he gave me a job, and off I went to to Wellington for a few years until I decided I had to come back to the South Island. But it was a strange thing because there's no way in the world these days that someone who'd only spent one term at university would get a job for AUP, the biggest university publisher in the world probably, and so on. So I don't know what they saw in me. I mean, I didn't see much in me really. <laughs> <laughs> now there's too much in me that I'd rather not see. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, so... Um, yeah, it's all, all a mystery. But I suppose the point I want to make is that a hell of a lot of what happens to us or many people is luck or chance, not their own good auspices. And not that many people would you know, like to own up to that. Mm. So when you always hear that old mantra, oh, you can do anything if you just put your mind to it or if you, you know, follow your dream if you believe enough, not always true. Not always true, no. <laughs> Wishful thinking. Yeah, but y yeah. Um, other questions? Yeah. When you wrote your songs, did you have a song that you used to write? No, I've, I've actually lost quite a few of them. Um, I don't know what to do with them. I think I'll give them all to the Hawkins. Um, and. Um, I've got correspondence beyond belief with all sorts of people, and they can have it all as well if they want it. Yeah. In fact, someone said to me, I probably should get rid of it all now because I've got burnt down or lost it. And burnt. But then I've never considered my own worth su of sufficient, su <laughs> sufficient for them to be too worried about that. You know. But the other one I want to mention, person, is John McIndoe gave me a job. He rang me up <coughs> when John Griffin told him I was back in Dunedin and I was working in the bakehouse. He said, if you're interested in the job, he said, you know, come and see me. And I went and saw John and um, talked to him for a little while and all of a sudden he said, hang on a minute. And he took a note, note paper out of his desk and wrote on it, 
the job's yours if you want it, and this is what I'll pay you. And she said, thank you very much. I'll s when she said, when can you start? I said, I'll start at the end of the week. You know, week in the bakehouse. And, uh, and that was a transformation for me. And <coughs> we published, John and I, one of the great unsung heroes in New Zealand publishing and writing. Very fine man, dignified man. So a patron of the arts, music and everything else. He bought paintings by little known painters and so on. And I worked for him for best part of 10 years and then I I got the Burns Fellowship and my partner then, um, Barbara Larson, I got her my job in Macandose and then when Macandose eventually shut down, she and a couple of friends started Long Acre Press. And look at all the stuff that come out of them. Mm. You, know? <coughs> in, you know, just thinking about <coughs> those notebooks and things, there's... When we were fossicking around in your shed out the back of your place, you were pulling open drawers and saying, oh, oh. look at that. Oh, I've forgotten all about right. that. You know, poems that you've written mm. years ago never seen the light of day. I've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of poems that I've never sent anywhere or done anything with. Um, and, yeah, it's a big stack. It's... it's it it concerns me, but I don't know what to do with them. And then on the other side of me says, well, what the bloody hell? There's lots of people write poems, and so what? You've published enough books of poems anyway. But, um, yeah, they're, they're all there in death. And I'm thinking I ought, I've been told many times in the last two or three years to bundle them all up and just give them to the Hockham, mm. which I think I ought to do. I think you should, yeah. because that shed wouldn't take much to... Blow it over or burn it down. So That's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> look, look. I just in closing, we've only been able to skim over a bit of Brian's life today. But I remember an email that he sent me a few years ago, and he was Brian was seventy then, I think. <laughs> and it went. I spent a relaxing Saturday, rode two hours thirty on the bike. I have a big race in early October, had a solid lunch, and then went and sawed and lugged a load of wood, and then trailered it back here. And that's at 70, and that's a relaxing Saturday <laughs> for Brian. Um, and you wrote in Boundaries, one of the books, and, and Brian's books are on sale at the back here with Paper Plus, and he will be uh, available to sign books af straight after this. Um, you wrote in Boundaries, when I look back, I often feel as if personally I've lived to the utmost, recreationally, intellectually, politically. Can I thank you, Brian, for taking the time to be with us today and for continuing to write about us and for us, and we're incredibly lucky to have had you here in Marlborough with us today. Can you thank Brian? Well, thank you very much for coming along. It's touching, yeah. Thank you. <laughs>